The views, opinions, and content of the show hosts and their guests appearing on America's Web Radio are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the station. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. You're listening to America's Web Radio. It's time now for the Doctor's Lounge Show with Dr. Hal Schurz. Welcome back into the Doctor's Lounge. I'm your host, Dr. Hal Schurz, and each week, either I or my co-host, Dr. Scott Barber, sit behind a microphone and bring you the information that you need to hear about healthcare issues so that you can advocate for yourself and your and for your family. Um, we try to uh, educate you and teach you and uh, present information to you that doctors used to talk about in doctors' lounges before the woke crowd tried to silence what we have to say. The um, Docs for Patient Care Foundation sponsors this show, which is the only physician-led healthcare think tank in the country. The uh, Docs for Patient Care Foundation stands for the doctor-patient relationship and for healthcare freedom for all Americans, and we work tirelessly to promote this and to try to educate those who are in charge of healthcare decision making so that they will do the right thing. The website is www.d the number 4 pcfoundation.org that's d4pcfoundation.org and your continued support for this show and for what we do is important so that we can continue to be um, the voice of health care um, for Americans who are not getting information that they need to be getting. So please support what we do. Um, I want to plug our upcoming um, direct primary care meeting in Dallas in November. Um, those of you who are um, uh, direct primary care doctors in practice um, may want to attend this meeting. It's It will help to make your practices better. Those of you who are um, not uh, in direct primary care as of yet, but are thinking that perhaps maybe you will, um, this is a, a great opportunity for you to uh, come and listen to uh, people who have gotten off the hamster wheel of insurance-based health care and have uh, decided to devote their uh, careers to their patients instead of to insurance companies or hospitals. So uh, this will be an incredible meeting with uh, great talks and great hands-on opportunity working uh, in workshops with specialists who will help uh, refine some of the skills that you currently use in your offices that uh, uh, are what uh, uh, family doctors in direct primary care do every day. So uh, please go to our website for more information about this upcoming meeting. You do not want to miss this. Uh, so today's show is uh, one that uh, I have thought about Often, I've talked about this with my colleagues and with patients. And the 
the um, show today is going to really be based on the simple question, can patients feel safe anymore? And that's, I think, a very important question, a very critical issue. And um, I, I really uh, question how secure we should be with the medical care that we're getting with the system that's in place right now. I started thinking about this. I, I think about this quite often and as a doctor who sees the quality of the doctors that I'm working with today. I question this as a patient in the system or as um, a, a an individual who has loved ones who have to deal with the healthcare system, and it is very troubling. There was an article that was recently published in a trade publication that I get, which once again got me thinking about this topic and and prompted me to share this with you and and uh, and just throw this out there for you to think about. This article was entitled, quote, Are Patients Safe in Hospitals, end quote. And this is just a part of what I'd like to cover today. So this was an interesting article. It was out of Yale University Center for Outcomes Research, and it was published in the Journal of the American Medical Association in JAMA. This study analyzed patient safety data over the past decade. And the study in, in, uh, in JAMA was entitled Trends and Adverse Event Rates with Hospitalized Patients Between 2010 and 2019. Now, why did this group decide to look at this? Well, it was because of a report that came out in 1999 from um, from the uh, uh, quote uh, from the Institute of Medicine, and it was entitled "Quote to Err is Human: Building a Safer Healthcare System." End quote. And in this report, there were. Um, uh, allegations that many people, patients, were being harmed in U.S. hospitals as a result of care that was suboptimal or was not as safe as it could be. Now, they said that the risk environment was such in U.S. hospitals that patients were suffering. So, after that report, there was a lot of investment of time and effort and attention towards making hospitals safer and to focus on systems. And I'm going to go more into this a little bit later. But it moved away from individuals and from personal responsibility. And it was thought that systems, if working properly, would 
make it almost impossible for us to do the wrong thing in the healthcare setting. It was thought that systems make behaviors almost automatic so that they will be safe and reliable environments for patients. So, it was suggested that we need to move away from urging individuals to do better and instead towards creating systems where it's almost impossible not to do the right thing. So the question that they had was, are we making any progress? And this study looked to answer this question. And it did so by going through the medical records of a quarter of a million medical encounters. Over 3,000 hospitals were represented in this survey across the country. And the answer was that there have been some improvements in reducing preventable adverse effects, events. But it was minimal across the entire spectrum of the adverse outcomes that this study identified. Some of them had to do with wrong site surgery. Some of them had to do with inappropriate use of certain medications like antibiotics or the administration of an incorrect medication. Some of these adverse events are quite serious and can lead to significant patient morbidity or mortality, death. So the conclusion was that patients are not safe in hospitals. Yes, we're making some progress, but the conclusion was that this approach towards taking responsibility away from individuals and investing that time and effort into systems was the right way of doing this, and we were not doing this enough. We were not investing enough time and effort into perfecting those systems. So we need to be doubling down on this approach and and trying to create systems that would prevent any kind of serious errors in hospitals. Now, I've given this matter a lot of thought. And I've discussed this with a lot of my colleagues just to pick their brains, to see what they had to think. I wanted to survey them and see if they believed that this was the case. And I've talked to friends of mine who are non-doctors to present this to them and just, you know, over a drink or coffee, just see what they had to say about this. And the conclusion that I have reached is that as a whole, 
our medical system is sick and it's in trouble. And it's not because we don't have systems in place. It's because we have people who are pushing ideas that are taking us away from traditional ways of being able to take care of patients. And the result of this is that patients are not only unsafe in hospitals, but they are unsafe in general. And there are many, many reasons for this, not just one. Not because we don't have enough systems. Not because we have not perfected systems. It's because we have dumbed down medicine. We've made it so that people who are not the best of the best could be able to survive and get through and take care of patients. And as a result, patients are suffering. And this is not just a doctor issue. This is an institution issue, a hospital issue. It, it, it It's pervasive. It's across every aspect of healthcare. We have seen our healthcare system, which undoubtedly, which without question, is the best in the world, but it was once superb. And we have people who are telling us, who want us to believe that our system stinks and that the only way to make it better is to create systems to centralize care to take responsibility away from individuals to make individuals less perfect to make individuals less capable of making the right decisions for patients a generation ago or two generations ago doctors were the most trusted profession in America. And that's because doctors really worked hard and they worked hard at becoming the best that they could be. And they put in the hours, they put in the time, they studied, they were concerned, they were focused like a laser beam on patient care. And that's not the case anymore. And it's not entirely doctors' faults. There's so many issues, so many factors that have led to this point in time that it's really hard to point your finger at one thing. I'll try to unpack a little bit about this, but I I think that it's really important to understand that when we diminish the individual doctors and we take we we try to tell them that they are not the most important part of the healthcare delivery system but they are a cog in the wheel and that the system is really the most important factor in delivering good quality health care, we've lost sight of everything. Let's 
start with what this study that I just cited went through and emphasized systems. It prioritized the systems over the individual, but no system ever cared for a patient. It's individual doctors that do that. It's the empathy and the, and the knowledge and the, um, and the time that the individual doctors put in that are important to making patients safer and healthier. And when you diminish the individual in a healthcare environment, the care suffers. Now, I don't want you to believe for a second that I don't think that putting some systems in place is is important to help reduce risk. You know, if we have checklists and double check to make sure that patients receive the right medications or they um, receive um, the the right um, test that they're scheduled for, there's nothing wrong with that. This effort to create systems by healthcare innovators was one of the things that they did was they thought that they can emulate the airline industry, which has checklists and systems and um, safe practices. And these healthcare experts thought that they can apply this to healthcare and it would cross over seamlessly. And in some ways it has. They created the surgical checklist and the surgical timeout. And this has actually been a positive. I was a naysayer when they implemented this in my operating room, and I pushed back. I have to admit that I did not want to see this happen. But I really do believe that it has made a positive impact on preventing wrong side surgery, which was something that happened with some regularity in hospitals around the country. So that has been addressed and that rate has been reduced when that surgical checklist and the surgical timeout is properly implemented. But out of that same model came the idea that doctors who work too many hours are dangerous to their patients, just like pilots who are flying too many hours. And so from this came the idea of shift medicine and the patient handoff. Now, there's some history behind that, and it stemmed from this case in New York, the Libby Zion case, where an intern or resident worked too many hours And there were medical mistakes that led to patient death. And the reality is that this was not true. This was not the case. But they used this argument as the premise to implement this whole movement towards limiting resident training hours. Because at the end of the day, it's not the residents that are responsible ultimately for the care and well-being of patients. 
the residents are in training, and it's up to the doctors who supervise those residents to make sure that the patients are being safely taken care of. And any patient who is suffering at the hands of a resident that is, quote, too tired, that's, that is a, a cop-out, and it is, it is scapegoating residents when it really is the um, the attending physician, the the physician in charge of that resident that bears the responsibility for these problems, these errors that may occur. Because becoming a doctor is not easy, and it really takes time and effort to do that. And cutting corners and limiting time <clears throat> that people are in training has actually produced a product that is inferior to what we have seen in past generations. And from this idea of the the timeout, the oh, I'm sorry, the shift medicine and the patient handoff is that in a given week a uh, the the person, the residents in training should be working just a limited amount of time. And it is beyond just the residents. It's the, it's now, um, it's morphed into the uh, doctors who are out of training, who are in the hospital taking care of patients, the so-called hospitalists, who are now taking care of the patients that are coming into the hospitals who with whom they have no relationship they don't know really anything about that patient until they get to the hospital and then they have to learn about the patient and take care of the patient as if they know what this patient has been going through up until the time they get into the hospital now in a given week a hospitalized patient may have four different doctors taking care of them, four different hospitalists, because of the handoffs that are occurring. And there's no longer a captain of the ship, a doctor who is in charge of a patient when they get to the hospital. When I started my training, doctors came to hospitals they had patients who were sick. They admitted their patients to hospitals. They took care of their patients in the hospitals. If they needed help, they had relationships with specialists who also came to the hospital and would be able to help the management of that particular patient under the supervision of the doctor in charge of that patient's care. The consultants, the specialists, would see patients. They would make recommendations that the overseeing doctor would read and in many cases, in most cases, actually have a conversation with the doctor about 
and they would talk about patients and they would bounce ideas off each other and one would get the other to think about things that they might not have necessarily thought of in a vacuum, in isolation, in a silo, isolated from everything else. And the patients in that setting got superb medical care. They got better. Now, I'm not suggesting that patients don't get better today in hospitals. Medical care has has advanced in so many ways. Our medicines are better. Our tests are better. Um, our treatments are better. But just think how much better it would be with all of those advances if doctors talked to each other, if doctors who patients were going to for their medical care on a regular basis were in charge of that patient when they got to the hospital. Think about how much better things would be if there was no handoff of patients and there was a there was no possibility that things would slip through the cracks. Right now we have an electronic medical record. Doctors don't talk to doctors anymore. It is astounding how little communication there are between doctors. They do everything in the medical record, in the electronic medical record, and they see a patient and and they load the boat. These hospitalists, they don't really have any any sense of of what a patient may need specifically, they look at the patient and they say, well, this patient may have a GI problem and may have a neurology problem and may have a urology problem and may have a pulmonary problem. So let's go ahead and put in consults for all of those doctors to see those patients for a possible problem, not even a specific problem, a possible problem. As a specialist, I get those consults all the time. And I'm asking myself, what in Sam Hill are they asking me to, to, to look for? Why are they consulting me on this patient? I have a, um, uh, a friend who is a, uh, vascular surgeon who was on call this weekend and he gets killed on call with these nonsense, these garbage consultations. A patient who was admitted to the hospital got a full body scan and the x-ray report, the CAT scan, reported that there was a calcium plaque on the aorta, the big blood vessel that supplies all the blood throughout the, the, the patient's body. And the concern was a possible aneurysm, weakness in the, in the aorta, in the blood vessel, and it could burst. And the 
consultant, my friend, was asked to see this patient because of this finding. And so as a good doctor, as somebody who's been in practice for over 30 years and knows how to evaluate information, he went back into the medical record. He went back and looked at x-rays, which the radiologist didn't do, in which the hospitalist didn't do, but he did, and he saw that the CAT scan was identical to the way the CAT scan looked six years earlier when there was no problem. It wasn't even identified six years earlier. And if anybody, if the radiologist would have taken the time to look at that old CAT scan and compare it to the current one, or if the hospitalist, and by the way, hospitalists never look at x-rays. They rely entirely on the reports of the radiologists. That's not what we do as specialists. We don't trust anybody or, or anything that is told to us by a radiologist. We look at our own films because we're liable for that information ultimate or, or that event ultimately if we miss it. But this is the problem. The the um, the patient the the patients are not being well treated, not being well taken care of. The hospitalists are loading the boat, and they are they are just having health medical decision making by committee instead of one person who is overseeing the care and making decisions that their consultants who are now no longer consultants their committee members are making on behalf of the patients so let me finish talking to you about why patient patients should not feel safe in the next half of this show so please stay with us The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. Hello, I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak. Have you ever wondered what doctors talk about amongst themselves? If you do, join us on the Doctor's Lounge and hear the doctor's conversations amongst themselves. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Schertz, every Thursday morning, 8 to 9 a.m. In 2009, the membership organization Docs for Patient Care was founded. People all around the country wanted to participate in the efforts of this group, and they wanted to join, but they were unable to do so unless they were physicians. It's for this reason that the Docs for Patient Care Foundation was created. Now, everyone can join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients, dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. While you're at your computer, please go to www.docs4patientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docs4patientcarefoundation.org and make a tax-deductible donation and join the fight along with us. Thank you. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. 
Okay, we're back in the doctor's lounge, and we are in the middle of a uh, of a, a monologue about why patients should be feeling less safe about the care that they're receiving these days in America. And I don't mean this to be um, a slam on the entire medical profession. There are lots and lots of good doctors out there, and um, I, th- what I'm saying are generalizations um, but th- there are trends that are happening and they're not trends in the right direction the problems with healthcare actually begin in medical schools and wokeism and equity have replaced academics and meritocracy and it's more difficult than ever for highly qualified academic students to get into medical school. It's, it's really hard getting into medical school. And part of the reason is because a good number of those places are being filled to satisfy identity politics, regardless of qualifications. And just like in failing high schools around the country where people are being pushed through and they're graduating, in many cases, illiterate. The same thing is happening in medical education, where people are being pushed through when they are really struggling in medical school, but they're being pushed through into residency programs, and they may be struggling in their residency programs, but they are not getting kicked out of residency programs because it would be politically incorrect to kick out certain people out of me- out of residency programs they're protected slots and um, and the, the 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 doctors that are being produced are are lacking in in knowledge in many cases and and in critical thinking and decision making and I'm not suggesting that any one particular identity group is a a um is is less capable than anybody else what i am saying is that that everybody should be judged on their on their academic qualifications and meritocracy and not based on identity politics which is one of the trends that we're seeing today in in um in medicine the curriculum in medical schools is being truncated. They're eliminating so many of the courses that are essential to create a good, well-rounded doctor and replacing them with courses that have no bearing on producing good doctors, courses that are um, based in teaching about social justice. This is... This is you know, not not producing better doctors. The problem extends into residency training, and the years in the training programs are being shortened. They, the residency programs used to be quite vigorous. They were long in years, long in hours, and now the years of training are decreasing to to produce doctors. The hours in a particular week are decreasing in the airline pilot model so that residents don't get tired. The result of this is that the young doctors 
who are coming out of training do not see the volume of cases that their predecessors saw. You learn by seeing and learn by doing, not by reading. And technology is not necessarily making the trainees better doctors. In fact, it's just the opposite. In general surgery, the most common procedures that are done in many of the training programs around the country, the majority, are done laparoscopically or robotically. And there are many instances where these procedures go badly. There's a problem where a blood vessel gets nicked and there's bleeding in your entire surgical field through your scope fills up with blood and you have to abort and get into that patient's belly or chest very quickly. And when residents have have limited experience doing procedures that have to do with getting into the belly or getting into the chest or getting into a cavity, a body cavity, that could be life-threatening and critical. So many young doctors can't do this, and patients are suffering as a result, and people die when these events occur. And it's such a crisis, it's such a problem that the American College of Surgeons recognizes this, and there are now well over a half dozen fellowship programs. This is programs after the surgical residency that are devoted to open surgery. Now, this is absurd to suggest to a surgeon 20 years ago that after their residency, they needed additional training how to operate. But that's what we're finding these days. We're finding that that um, a graduating general surgery resident can't do surgeries on their own. I know many general surgeons who have shared this with me and their new trainees from some of the best programs around the country are incapable of operating by themselves and they need to be mentored. They need to have somebody at their side who has experience to help them get the experience that they should have gotten in a traditional residency program. One of my good friends is a surgical oncologist, and he's been in practice for over 30 years. And he had a young associate who had a patient with a gallstone in the common bile duct. That's where the the bile goes after it leaves the... It's between the gallbladder and the liver. And it's not uncommon for a stone to get stuck in that channel. When I was a resident, doing a gallstone that was stuck in the common bile duct was a third-year resident case. It was so common that that um, in some programs the third year residents had done so many of them that they were passing it down to the, the second year resident or even letting interns sometimes 
um, do them if they showed promise. Today, that is a chief resident case, and some chief residents may not even get experience. So my buddy, who is an, uh, a, a surgical oncologist but also does general surgery, had a young associate, and his young associate had a patient with a common bile duct stone, and he asked my friend if he would come into the operating room to give him a hand. And my friend said, so how many of these have you done? And sheep, sheepishly, he told him, none. He had not done one of those cases. And my buddy was just incredulous. He could not believe that somebody could get out of a general surgery program and not have done a common bile duct stone. And so he said, okay, let me walk you through this. Let me show you what you need to do. And he basically walked him through his first one when he was a doctor in practice. This is emblematic of what we are seeing on a regular basis across specialties, but especially in surgical specialties around the country. It should not make anybody less secure to to hear the statistics I'm going to share with you. That 55% of all surgical specialists are over 50 years old. And greater than 60%, according to so many surveys that have been done, over 60% of doctors are dissatisfied with the practice of medicine today and are planning or thinking about retirement. And that leaves the system in a very precarious state. Because the only viable solution to meet this need of our population needing surgical support, needing surgeons with experience, is to import those surgeons from abroad, some of whom will be excellent because in countries around the world where they don't have technology and they have to learn how to get in and out of body cavities, many of these surgeons are actually quite good, but many are not. And we have no way of being able to vet this out, to objectively evaluate them. And so the on the path we're on, on this track, the future of surgical practice is very precarious. You cannot replace them with PAs or nurse practitioners as they do in cognitive medical specialties. It takes years to create a surgeon, many years, and a lot of experience to create a very good surgeon, an excellent surgeon. I'm having surgery next week. This just a aside. So I'll be out for a few weeks, um, and I'll have my one of my buddies, Dr. Ori Hampel, who is a uh, urologist in Houston, subbing for me. He's he's excellent, and you'll love him. But I have the ability to shop for my surgeon. I know who the best of the best is, and I know who I'm going to go to. And as a practicing physician, 
that gives me a tremendous advantage over everybody else. I am, you know, I worry about everybody else who doesn't have that opportunity. And I worry about myself when I no longer have that ability to select the best of the best because I will no longer have those resources or I will um, have the uh, I'll, I may have the, the resources to find this out but there won't be enough of those doctors around to take care of me I, I worry about this all the time the, the problem with Underqualified doctors goes f- beyond surgical specialties, unfortunately. Doctors in primary care today no longer come to the hospital, as I mentioned to you, to take care of their patients. And this task has fallen on the hospitalists, as we've discussed. And there are many issues to unpack here, but ultimately the patient suffers by not having their doctors managing things. And the newer doctors today, not having experience taking care of sick patients in the hospital, people who are seeing people in the office, have lost that edge. When you take care of sick people in the hospital, you can, that's translatable, that's transferable information that you can bring into your office setting and you can take better care of patients when you have that Ability, but when you pass those patients off, all the sick ones, into the hospital, and you're no longer taking care of those patients, you've lost the skill set that you should have had during residency that you no longer have. Doctors no longer see those sick people anymore. And part of the reason is the rise of the hospitalists. But part of the reason is a system issue. These systems that we talked about earlier that are supposed to be so good at helping us take care of patients. It's the promotion of the electronic medical record. When hospitals went to the electronic medical record, it pushed out the doctors. It pushed out the old doctors who did not feel that they could absorb this newer technology, how to navigate the electronic medical record. And so with the rise of the electronic medical record came the rise of the hospitalists and the demise of doctors going into hospitals, doctors in the community following their patients into the hospitals. The um, electronic medical record has destroyed collegiality. As I mentioned to you before, nobody talks to each other. Nobody chats. They simply put in orders, and now they have the boat all, excuse me, the boat already loaded with six specialists looking into the problems that the hospitalist doesn't know about and is uncomfortable managing, and they're basically doing it to CYA, cover their arse. And the problem with this issue is that it's everywhere. Doctors no longer talk to patients. They don't do proper physical examinations. My mother hasn't had her her body checked by her internist in two years. She goes to the doctor visits, 
and he sits in front of his computer and he looks at lab data and x-rays and asks her how she's feeling. That is that is unconscionable. And it's so far easier for doctors to look at blood work and x-rays than to learn how to examine patients and see what's abnormal. And by the way, they're relying on a radiologist to look at the x-ray results who may or may not even be able to give a good um, uh, diagnosis. And many times they don't. They're covering their ass and they're saying, well, this could be this, but cannot rule out this or cannot rule out that, which leads to getting more tests and more studies, which drive up the cost of health care and does not produce better outcomes or better, better um, medicine. It's just, it's just checking the boxes and covering their rear end. When I started practice, surgical practice, I'm a pediatric urologist, I saw one surgical case for every three patients that came into my office. Now, it's more like one surgical patient for every 20 that comes in the office. And much of this is because the doctors today are not nearly as good as the doctors when I started in practice. They were better. They were able to look at a patient and determine whether or not they needed to come see a specialist or not. And a big part of this is that many of these patients are being seen by nurse practitioners or PAs, not by the doctors. And they're just not as good at diagnosis at physical exam as the doctors are or the doctors of yesterday were. And so with any question, they immediately knee-jerk send those patients to specialists for further evaluation, which in 19, I don't want to exaggerate, not 19 out of 20, but at least half of the patients that I see today don't need to come see me. If they had a good doctor evaluating them and being able to tell the patient that this is the problem, don't worry about it. If things change or get worse, that's when we need to send you to a specialist. And part of the reason also, it's such a complex issue, but there's so much more information today than there was 20 or 30 years ago, and it's really hard for people to know everything. The doctors 30 years ago had much less to think about than the doctors today. But the basics are the basics. They, they never change. Being able to check somebody and listen to their lungs or listen to their heart, put their hands on the patients, those never change, and that's not happening. Um a lot of this has to do with hospitals. They they are no longer interested in patient care. They're interested in making money. Part of it, part of that money making is that they don't take care of their staff. There's a nursing shortage that the hospitals failed to recognize at the beginning of the pandemic, and they let those nurses go. 
thinking that they would come back, and they haven't. And now there's a critical nursing shortage in the hospitals, and people are not getting well taken care of, and the people who are there are overworked, or they're being staffed by by nurses or or nurse um, assistants that are poorly trained. The poorly trained ones are training the new ones, and it's a scale that's the Peter Principle. It's the lowest common denominator, and it's getting worse and worse. But I, you know, I ask myself, it's if if um, the the kids, the young kids who are in training right now are being coddled and they're told that their lifestyle is important and we have to worry about physician burnout. I'm I'm wondering why my son, who's in private equity, is working harder than so many young doctors today when the medical profession, when these doctors should be the ones working harder and getting better at their craft and putting in the time and the effort. But instead, they're being told, no, you need to work less. You need to be concerned about your quality of life. And they believe it. And as a result, they are not willing to put in that time. Now, my son in private equity is putting in ridiculous hours and that's not life and death. That's making money. That's that's financial stuff. And if there's no problem there, why on earth should there be a problem in healthcare? That's what I can't understand. We've changed our uh, our, our basic priorities of what's important and how we're going to fix problems and take care of them. We shouldn't be telling young doctors that they're working too hard, that they are, they are, um, they need to work less and we'll find ways to make your life better. I'm not, I'm not suggesting that, that, um, the doctors a generation ago who didn't see their children as much as the, the doctors today are because they feel that a well-rounded life is important and family life is something that doctors in the past may have neglected. But taking care of patients, if you go down that road and, and agree to be a doctor, is the primary um, your, it's, it's your primary goal. If you're not doing that, if you're not putting in the time, then you have failed in your job. And that is the take-home message that I think we need to be teaching the young doctors today. Not that they're overworked, not that wokeism and social justice and equity are important, but taking care of their patients, touching their patients, listening to their patients, following their patients through the system, helping their patients to navigate the the morass of stuff that they have to deal with. That's what's important. That's what the patients are depending on. And when they cannot depend on that anymore, then we have a problem. 
I'm going to end the show with a with a gratuitous um, uh, uh, comment or several comments. In the last week, two weeks, we've seen a couple of events occur. We've seen the CDC make an about face and come to the hard reality, the realization that they goofed, that they screwed up in this pandemic. That was followed by the announcement by by uh, King Fauci that he was stepping down. And don't think he's stepping down because he is moving on to other things. This is one of the most... Uh, he is probably one of the biggest narcissists in our society today. And he gets more exposure and more financial gain being in his current position than we can possibly imagine. So he's not stepping down because he's moving on to other things. He's stepping down because he knows that it's going to hit the fan when the um, House changes over and there's real oversight into what's happened. So everything that I had talked about in 2020 in 2021 and Dr. Scott talked about on this show critical of the um, of the responses by the government by the CDC by the NIH by the FDA it's looking like we are not so wrong anymore it's looking like maybe these criticisms were valid maybe doctors like us and doctors around the country who were talking about other ways of treating patients with COVID were not spreading disinformation or misinformation. Maybe the people who were accusing us of that should be brought up on charges of misinformation or disinformation by this by this um, truth. Um, squad that they are still looking at implementing. There will be a day of reckoning. We're going to look back on all of this and see that people like us were right all along and that uh, the people who were leading us through this were um, gaining. They had had a lot of um, uh, ability to profit from this, and they did. Thank you for being with me today on the Doctor's Lounge and hearing about our um, troubled healthcare system and what what uh, what the uh, problems that patients need to think about are in our system. I'll be back here in a month. Um, my co my co-host Doctor Scott will be here next week, and my uh, substitute uh, behind the microphone, Doctor Ori Hample, will be here in two. Thanks for being with me. The views, opinions, and content of the show hosts and their guests appearing on America's Web Radio are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the station. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.